How do you work out whether something is true or false? Whether to trust something that someone is telling you? I don't know what it's like, I know folk are visiting this morning from outside Otley, but in Otley there's always a debate uh, online when work starts on a unit in the high street in Otley. And it's like, what's it going to be? Is it going to be a cafe? Is it going to be a charity shop? Is it going to be a hairdresser's? Or is it going to be a restaurant? There's basically your four options in Otley. <laughs> cafe, charity shop, hairdressers, or restaurants. But people, it's really fascinating, because people always claim to know what's going to go in there. They always say that they know what's happening, but their claims always contradict each other. So how do you know who's telling the truth? And it's interesting, people engage in these debates, I don't know why, but the, the same questions always come back up in the in response. Where did you hear it? How sure are you? And what do the planning authorities say? That's the basic questions that they ask. Where did you hear it? How sure are you? What do the planning authorities say? And the debate goes back and forth uh, online, but it really drills down to those three questions. Well, Paul here in Galatians makes a disputed claim. He says one thing, but the teachers have come in into Galatia uh, since he's left and they've said something else. Paul is claiming that he is right in what he said and that they are wrong. But they, on the other hand, are claiming that they are right and Paul is wrong. Now, if it's a building on the high street, it's not so much of a problem, is it, really, in the scheme of things. But here the discussion is about something much more serious. The discussion is not about shops, but about salvation. Paul and these false teachers are teaching different ways, so they claim, to get right with God and to progress in the Christian life. To put it plainly as I can, they're basically teaching opposing ways to get to heaven. One will lead you safely to eternity with God, but the other one will lead you to hell. The question is though, which one is right? Which one is the road to heaven? Which one is the road to hell? And for a quick glance at what they're teaching, both roads look quite similar. Both say things about Jesus. Both say things about the Bible. Now you might be tempted to think, well, it's close enough, isn't it? They're basically teaching the same thing. But Paul is clear here. He and the false teachers at the heart of it are teaching completely different things. So different are their gospels that he's saying their gospel is no gospel, no good news at all. In fact, it will damn you, is what he's saying. But the false teachers have been making out that Paul is the one in the wrong. And we're left with that question, and Paul is left to defend himself, how do you know that I'm telling the truth? How do you know who to trust? Whose gospel is correct? Well, we can trust Paul, says Paul. And people cast doubt on that today, don't they, as well, that whether we can trust what Paul says. Well, Paul takes them through those same questions that anybody would ask. Where did you hear your gospel? Where did you hear it? How sure are you? And what do the authorities say? And the answer to those questions are our three headings this morning. And we're going to see that Paul's gospel, for them and for us, is trustworthy. So firstly, where did you hear it? Well, this is Paul's first big bombshell. He says, Jesus told me it. 
That's verses 11 and 12. Let me read them to you again. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying there, he wants his readers to know that he's not passing on a second-hand gospel. It's not been a game of Chinese whispers where it's been passed on from one person to another. There's no chance of it being corrupted in transmission. Paul received his message directly, directly from Jesus Christ. And he may have sat as a student under Gamaliel when he was studying Judaism, but Jesus was the one that he learned this message from. And there's no higher authority to receive it from. There's no better authority to receive it from since the gospel is about Jesus Christ. Who better to receive it from than Jesus Christ himself? So he didn't come up with it himself. He didn't borrow it from someone else or some other religion or preacher. It's not Paul's version of the gospel as you sometimes hear. It is the gospel, the true one, the only one. So Paul says, if those false teachers are teaching a different one from me, then they're teaching a different one from Jesus. Because that's where I got my gospel from. Now sometimes people drive a wedge between Paul's message and Jesus' message. They try and say, well no, they're, they're really two different things. It's not un uncommon to hear things like, well, it may be in the Bible, but Jesus never spoke about it. Or Paul may have said that, but Jesus would never have said that. Jesus' message is a simple message of love, but Paul turned it into a complicated religious system. Even Muslims go down this line. They teach that Jesus taught the truth, and then Paul came in and corrupted it and changed it. But Paul here is adamant. The message I brought you was the one I got from Jesus himself. My message is Jesus' message. My gospel is Jesus' gospel. The one that Jesus himself sent me to preach. And that matters for us, doesn't it? Here in the 21st century. If Paul is teaching something less than what Jesus taught, or a distorted version of what Jesus taught, then we shouldn't believe him. We shouldn't go down that line, should we? But if he was teaching what Jesus would have him teach, then his words are of equal value to what Jesus says. Sometimes uh, you get those uh, Bibles, don't you? The red letter Bibles. I've got some upstairs as well. I've got them over the years. And red letter Bibles, they have the words of Jesus uh, in red. And I can see why they do it, but in one sense it could be unhelpful, couldn't it? It's not that it shouldn't be that the words of Jesus are in red. It's really that the whole thing should be in red, shouldn't it? Because all of it is Jesus' word. All of it is spirit-breathed. What Jesus said is God's word, and what Paul writes here is God's word too. And Paul got it straight from Jesus. So Paul is really saying, look, you can trust what I say. My message is Jesus' message. But how sure of that was he? How sure of what he was teaching was he? Well, second point, so sure, I preached it independently for 14 years. Now this is really verses 13 to, to 24, you can glance down as we go through. But we see there that Paul went from a persecutor 
to a preacher. His life was completely turned around. When Paul was called by Jesus on the road to Damascus, his life completely changed. But he tells you quite explicitly in those verses that he didn't go and check it uh, in Jerusalem. He didn't check his mission with the other apostles. You know, Jesus appeared to him and he thought, well, I better go make sure that really was right. No, he said he waited three years before he even went to Jerusalem. Jesus had sent him to preach. And that's what he did. He got on with it. The churches in Judea had heard a bit about Paul, but he didn't go see them or consult with them. What Paul is saying is that he was left in no doubt as to the truth of what he'd been told. He didn't feel the need to go and be approved or rubber stamped by the other apostles. He didn't feel the need to check that his message accorded with theirs. The same Jesus had sent them both, so why bother? He was confident his message was right, so he had no need to check. Because if Paul had felt the need to go immediately and have his message validated by the other apostles, the false teachers would have maybe had a point. You know, if, if you were so sure, Paul, that Jesus spoke to you, why did you go straight away to check? Were you unsure that your message was true? How did you know it's true? Well, it depended on them telling you it was true. It depended on their validation. But Paul didn't do that. That's what he says. I got on with preaching. There are also some subtle digs, I think, that the false teachers hear. Paul talks about his life in Judaism, his former way of life. He uses that phrase, former way of life. He's no longer in that life. He no longer classifies himself that way. He was an expert in Judaism, zealous and advancing in it. He was a high flyer. And yet he says he left that behind. Now the false teachers are teaching that to become more Christian means to become more Jewish. Circumcision, food laws, festivals. But Paul sort of drops in in his story that no, I've been there, I've done that, and I left that behind when I became a Christian. This is not going forwards, this is going backwards. And you can't say that I don't know what I'm talking about because I know my stuff. I was an expert in Judaism. I was a proponent of Judaism to the extent that I persecuted Jewish people who gave up their life in Judaism to become Christians. If becoming a Christian were about being more Jewish, then surely the old Paul would have rejoiced in it. Now, of course, there is a sense in which when you put your trust in Jesus as a Jew, it is the most Jewish thing that you can do. So Romans uh, 2, uh, verse 28 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. But do you see, even there, Paul is clear that the external markers the customs that the false teachers were trying to impose are not what it's about. It was never about that. Jesus has broken those things down so that we might be united as one people, one mankind, made up of Jew and non-Jew. So Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, that's Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. 
And what Paul is saying is that those false teachers are trying to build up that wall again. The wall that Jesus himself has broken down. Instead of creating one new humanity out of the two, made up of Jew and non-Jew, instead they want everybody to become a Jew. They want to keep the wall, if you like, but put everybody on one side of it. But what Jesus is saying, well actually, no, it's one people made up of the two. The wall is gone. Now many of those people who claimed this, wanting to put everybody on one side, claim to be from James, the Lord's brother. We'll meet him in the next, uh, next week. But that's possibly why Paul makes mention of James in verse 19. He actually went to see James. And then in verse 20, he, he backs himself up, doesn't he? Do you see that? In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. As though he's saying, look, they say they're from James, but I've met James, and James agrees with me. James was fine with me. That's no lie. But he doesn't make any mention there of checking his gospel as he goes to Jerusalem when he meets with James. He meets with Peter and stays with him a fortnight. He calls him Cephas, his Aramaic name. I wonder if it's a little reminder again that they would have spoken Aramaic to each other, both being equally Jewish. He also speaks of himself in language normally reserved for Old Testament prophets. In verse 15 he talks about being set apart before his birth, called by grace. It's like what God says to Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 1 verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Here Paul says he was set apart as an apostle to the nations. Then called by grace, which is the same experience that the Galatians had. In verse 6, they were called by the grace of Christ. So for Paul, it starts with grace. And it continues by grace for both Paul and the Galatians. But Paul is special here, isn't he, in his position as an apostle. So he doesn't need to go and check his gospel. There's no grilling by the apostles. There's no counsel over what Paul is teaching. It's a friendly visit and he's accepted. But it leaves you with the question then, does that mean then that Paul has never had his gospel examined by the other apostles? by the other relevant authorities. Well, our final point turns out that he has. So our final point, what do the other authorities say? Well, the other authorities agree with me. Let me read to you a few verses from chapter two. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield uh, in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 14 years after conversion is probably what's meant in verse 1. Paul takes a trip again up to Jerusalem. He goes with Barnabas and he goes because of a revelation. While he's there, he sets forward his gospel in front of a limited group of privately influential people. 
possibly just James, Peter and John. They affirm that he is teaching what they are teaching. And it's said that they offer him the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they consider him a partner in the work. Incidentally, that's why when we welcome people into membership, I make the point of shaking uh, their right hand to show that we're partners together, fellows together. Now, the time he's referring to here has been subject to a lot of debate over the years. How does it fit in with Paul's accounts or Luke's accounts in Acts about Paul? Now, I'm going to spare you all the working this morning, but it's likely what we've got here is Acts chapter 11. Paul and Barnabas are visiting to deliver aid to Christians in Jerusalem in response to a revelation from God to Agabus that there'd be a great famine. This is what it says in Acts 11. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now this would make this Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, both in Acts and in Galatians. Verse 10 in Galatians also makes a bit more sense when it talks about them carrying on remembering the poor, since that's what they're actually doing. They're going there to do that. What makes it tricky is that this makes all the events at the end in a very short space of time, a very quick turnaround. Let me show you. So this is how it works out. It's not quite common for exactly what I'm there, so that's a three and that's a 14. But you see all the events, so his second Jerusalem visit, the Galatian church is planted, and Paul writing Galatians would all take place in the space of just a few months. So it's not a period of years, but just a few months. In the space of maybe a, a little more than a year, Paul visits Jerusalem, heads off to plant the churches in Galatia, writes to the Galatians and heads back to Jerusalem for his third visit, which is commonly known as the Council of Jerusalem. And if that's true, which I'm convinced it is after looking at it this week, it starts to explain a few things that go on in the letter. For example, it explains why Paul is astonished and uses such a strong word earlier in chapter 1. This would mean that the churches had abandoned Paul's gospel within just a few months of receiving it. So it's not years that he's been away, it's just a few months. Also, it would explain why Paul is so keen to revisit this area straight after the Council of Jerusalem, where the issue is settled by the church as a whole. He can now go and tell them what's been decided in Judea with a letter on behalf of the other apostles. It also explains why Paul doesn't bring up the Council of Jerusalem in the letter. Surely if this was after a council, looking at precisely the issues that the false teachers were teaching, then Paul would have brought it up in his letter. When he's sort of going through, what did I do? He would have mentioned that, wouldn't he? Oh, and by the way, we all had a big council about it in public, and we decided this. It would have been a, a, a clincher argument, but he doesn't mention it because the council hasn't happened yet. What it does mean as well, though, is that Galatians is possibly the oldest letter in the New Testament. Written maybe only 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. 15 years, that's like 20, 2008. That's just happened, that's, that's five minutes ago. I still think the music from 2008 is like modern stuff that I haven't got round to listening yet. There's a few albums I still want to buy from then. But it also means this myth that we can call the gospel 
is somehow a much later invention is nonsense. Keep that in mind as we look at how clear Paul is about Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, what Jesus' death accomplished, and exactly how it is that we're saved. If this is only 15 years after Jesus died, that makes this very significant. And Paul's insistence actually in this letter is that this has been his message all along. This is not something new. This is what I've been teaching from the beginning for the last 14 years. If his message was different uh, uh, some time ago, that would completely undermine his argument, wouldn't it? Because he'd changed the gospel himself. But the implication here is that it's not. The substance of his message is the same as what he was preaching right from the start when Jesus called him. The gospel that Paul was preaching was the same message as Peter, James and John. End of verse 6, they added nothing to me. There was nothing missing in Paul's gospel. There was no deficiency in what he was teaching. And because Paul's gospel was the one gospel, that meant the other apostles, that was the same as they were teaching and believing. And you know what? That's why the New Testament holds together, isn't it, if you think about it? The authors may have had different styles or ways of expressing things, but there's one message, isn't there? One gospel. And that gospel, says Paul, in this context, did not include circumcision. The apostles did not insist that Titus be circumcised. If it was required, then don't you think the apostles would have insisted on that? Yet Paul notes that there were those there who were teaching this, who were saying that they should be, but the apostles weren't. There were those who had infiltrated the church in order to bring it under a yoke of slavery, he says. Paul calls them false brothers, pseudo-brothers, who had crept in to spy out on their freedom. They wanted to take them from freedom to slavery, from liberty to law-keeping, from Christ to circumcision. And the reason that Paul mentions that is because that's exactly what the teachers, false teachers in Galatia are doing. <coughs> Paul doesn't deny that they may have come from Jerusalem, but Paul wants to make it clear that they did not come from the apostles, whatever they might claim. The apostles were clear. The same person that worked through Peter's ministry to the Jews was at work through Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. They received the right hand of fellowship. Get the right hand. <laughs> they recognised one another's ministry. They recognised they were on the same team. Peter was to go to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. So Paul was there and stood with the rest of the apostles. And he stood against the false brothers teaching circumcision and didn't give in to them. Paul withstood them to preserve the truth of the gospel. You see, Paul was no respecter of persons. He wants to show that by keep mentioning that they, they seemed as though they were influential. Remember that the false teachers wanted to make Paul out to be a people pleaser. But Paul doesn't care whether they're important or not. What mattered to Paul was the truth of the gospel. And what he says here is that the apostles who seemed influential were on his side. Both of them were on the side of the true gospel. But why does that matter that they're all on the same side? Well, it points to a common source, doesn't it? Paul's been preaching the same message for 14 years. What if he had checked only to find that his gospel was different? The question was, would then arise, well, who was right? 
Well, more likely, you'd want to say the apostles, since they've known Jesus for three years. But what does it mean that it's not different? Well, if the gospel was untrue, then what's the chance of it starting independently in two places within just a few years? You know what I mean? So the 12 disciples come up with this message, and then a man called Paul comes up with it independently in Damascus. Sure, Paul had had contact with Christians before he was converted. He's already told us that he hated them. But even then he was still learning, Christians were still learning the implications of the gospel. Even Peter hadn't grasped the full implications of the gospel for the Gentiles until Acts chapter 10. That's after Paul's conversion, just before his visit here that we read. Paul didn't just grasp it, he's been there out there preaching it. The two gospel lines, if you like, could have diverged, you know, start off the same and then got different. But they hadn't, they didn't. Instead, it turned out both were teaching the exact same thing. Peter didn't feel the need to go plant a load of Peter churches among the Gentiles. Paul didn't feel the need to come and plant a load of Pauline churches among the Jews. They both recognised that they were on the same mission. And all that really teaches us three things as we close. Firstly, it teaches us the miraculous nature of the gospel. Here is a gospel received miraculously by Paul through the resurrected Jesus. That's where Paul says he got it from. And his other writings and the writings of Luke corroborate that. They agree. Something incredible happened to Paul on the road to Damascus that turned him from persecutor to preacher. It changed him to such a degree that he went about preaching his new message with so much confidence that he didn't even feel the need to check it. And when he did check it, it turned out the message that he'd been teaching for 14 years was exactly the same as the other apostles. Now either Paul is lying here, and his message came from another source, or God miraculously gave him the same message as the other apostles, just in a different place and at a different time. We can't write Paul off as mistaken here because his claims are too big and too clear. He's either lying or the gospel was miraculously interested to him. Paul claims as well would have been easily checkable by the Galatians. He mentions specific people. Peter, James, John, Barnabas, Titus. The Galatians could have checked this. If the false teachers were right, then Peter, James and John would be hostile to Paul and his message. They would not hesitate to refute Paul's claims, to have met with them and stayed with them. Clearly letters were easily sent between places in those days because Paul's sending anyone. And if Paul is lying, then something's up with Peter and his letters because he later calls Paul our beloved brother who writes to people according to the wisdom God gave him. And Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture. Now that seems to corroborate what Paul was saying. There's no chasm between Paul and the other apostles. And if that's true, then secondly, it means that we can have confidence in the scriptures. Paul's point to the Galatians throughout all of this is you can trust what I'm telling you. You can trust the gospel that I've spoken to you. It's backed up by the history that I'm telling you. And as we said, Paul's claims were checkable. And if Paul really did have this message from the mouth of the risen Jesus, then what he says is reliable. That mattered for the Galatians as he refuted the false teachers, but it matters for us too, doesn't it? 
If Paul really was someone who had altered the gospel, then the curses that he calls down on others in chapter 1 should be called down on him. But if Paul really was the messenger of Jesus Christ, like the prophets of old, then it means that his words carry God's authority. It's not enough to say Jesus never spoke about this or that issue, because he did, only through the mouth of Paul. We can trust what Paul wrote to be the very word of God. The whole Bible, Old and New Testament, is God's word for us. It needs to be handled correctly, of course, as Paul himself says, but it's there for us, and it carries God's authority. It's the sword of the Spirit, as we alluded to in our reading. And that means, thirdly and finally, that we need to stand firm on the scriptures against false teaching, but at the same time recognise other genuine gospel work. We need to stand firm on what the scriptures say, including on what Paul says, against those who would seek to change it. Those people were around in Paul's day, they're still around in our day. Some pervert the scriptures knowing exactly what they're doing, others do it unknowingly. But either way, we must stand with Paul and verse 5 and not yield in submission, even for a moment. Here, the truth of the gospel is at stake both then and now. That said, we don't become so suspicious that we miss out genuine gospel work. Could you imagine for a second if Paul had met Peter and uh, this is the sort of conversation that went through it. You know, so Paul says, well look, I've been teaching, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice and slander, that's Colossians 3.8. And Peter says, oh wait a second, 1 Peter 2 verse, what I probably wouldn't say the verse 20, but so put away all malice, deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Well, that's not the same, is it? Oh, they're different. Right, okay, we can't possibly be associated together. Right, you start your churches, I'll start mine. You call your St. Peter's, I'll call my St. Paul's. And both now feel the need to evangelise the world, duplicating everything. That doesn't happen, though, does it? They understand that they can work together. Paul and Peter understand the need to recognise genuine gospel work. So in our enthusiasm to stay true to the gospel, let's not write off people and churches when we don't have to. There are churches we partner with. You take the gospel to that place, and we'll take it to here. We may not be identical in theology, but we recognise the true gospel is taught there. We recognise that we're walking down the same road together. We need to do both, don't we? Refute error and work with people that we can work with. Otherwise, we'll end up fighting friends and entertaining enemies, hindering those we should be helping and helping those we should be hindering. How do we decide? Well, what do they think of what Paul says? What do they make of the gospel that Paul taught and its implications? Because as we've seen, we know that Paul's gospel is trustworthy. Paul's gospel is the same one that Jesus taught, is the same one that the apostles taught. However much a group might claim to be apostolic or into the apostles, if they disagree with Paul, then we disagree with them. In which case, if uh, there is a, a, an opening down the road, it turns out it's a church down the road, well it may as well be a barber's or a cafe or a charity shop. Because if there's not the true gospel there, then they won't do anything for the gospel. 
So let's pray that we would hang on to the true gospel, that we'd refute error, but that also we'd help those who do preach the gospel, and that God would help us to be able to tell friend from foe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's defence of the true gospel. Father, help us to keep going back to the scriptures, keep going back to what you have told us for certain. Father, help us to refute error when it comes up. But Father, help us also to embrace other gospel workers who are working for the true gospel. Father, help us to know the difference between the two as we discern and as we look into your scriptures. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to finish uh, with a song now that reminds us that just like Paul...